Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushin Hunter-Raja, and I'm joined today by Chief Football Writer of the Independent, Miguel Delaney, Senior Football Correspondent, Melissa Reddy, and Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley. We knew it wouldn't take long, that we did have to wait for it, but Liverpool have done it for the first time since 1990. They have won the league and the first in the Premier League era for them. In the end, it was another title wrapped up by Chelsea as they beat Manchester City last Thursday with the Liverpool squad watching on from a hotel on the outskirts of the city. Now, it's taken a while, as we've said, and yes, it's been wrapped up with time to spare. As Miguel wrote in his piece, the Jurgen Klopp side are the earliest and the latest champions in history, winning it with seven games to play, but crowned only on June 25th. Melissa, I'm going to bring you in straight away. We'll start off of the back of your 30 things that have been put in place for this to, uh, well, for Liverpool to kind of realise their dream of winning that maiden Premier League. Um, it's been a long time coming, not just with a few false dawns from previous managers, but also taking a bit of time under Jurgen Klopp himself as well. Yeah, from his first day in charge, he made it pretty clear that he wasn't a miracle worker and there would need to be a lot of steps put into place. And it's actually quite odd to go back in time and remember the period before he took over and how toxic things were in the stadium. Uh, the fan base was divided. Um, there was just all, all throughout the club, it was so dysfunctional. There was a dual policy at play. And to look back and to understand how much actually needed to happen for Liverpool to get to this point, not just winning the title, but doing it so convincingly and comprehensively um, is astounding. And everything he set out to do in October 2015, when he first met with Benway Sports Group and over the course of six hours spelled out his vision for the club and how they could reach this point, he's basically done. Migs, you were ranking the Premier League champions up to date and um, as it stands, Liverpool are still on court or a record points total. I think they can make a, a maximum of 107. Um, and yeah, already you reckon that they're, um, you know, they're up there as uh, one of the best champions we've seen. Yeah, I mean... I don't think much stock should be put into what points they get after this. Or really, I, I think that's generally the case with all these great teams that win the title early because then they can get into weird situations where some of them get obsessed with breaking records and others kind of just then see the excuse for putting out the uh, like the, some of the youth players or whatever. But what is key really, because this is the, the truer reflection of the team, is their return and their level of points and their performance level at the point at which they won it, because that's them at their maximum, or at their at their purest, their most distilled, or however you want to describe it. And with Liverpool, that's the return at the moment of 2.65 points per game, which is astonishing. Uh, I mean, it blows previous records out of the water, even cities. Um, and there is a kind of a wider debate here about how, uh, like when you're discussing the great teams, and it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a kind of a hoary debate, but 
you should be taking into account that those teams that win the league and win the Champions League or trophies in the, in the same season because one competition saps from the other. So it is, it, you know, it, it does. And if you can win both, it is a kind of a greater achievement. But even even allowing for that, first of all, Liverpool are coming into the season as the European champions, and secondly, it's just the totality of the domination following on from last season as well, which which is incredible. I mean, they didn't give anyone a chance, and that, that, that's both in the league and in play. And like when, when a team wins twenty seven of their thirty games to actually seal seal a title. There's not much debate, I don't think. It doesn't it doesn't leave room. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That is fair. Um, Critch, just to throw to you for this turnaround, Liverpool were one point behind City last season and at this stage, they are 23 points ahead of them. How much of that is down to Liverpool's improvement and Manchester City's struggle? No, I don't think you can take too much away from Liverpool. I think um, this this has been part of a process that we've seen over the last five years from, from Jurgen Klopp's side. Um, I remember covering them in, in 2017-18 when I think they finished fourth and kind of crawled over the line in terms of getting into the Champions League. But you could almost sense that they were the second best team in England behind City at that point. And you could tell that this this was always like leading up to uh, trophies in the future. Um, but at the same time, there is only one team that was really capable of of competing with them this season. They absolutely haven't. And Manchester City need to recognise that. And Pep Guardiola will recognise that this summer when eventually the season eventually finishes and they, they review um, how it's gone. I think that, you know, th- there's plenty of reasons why they haven't quite um, matched up to Liverpool as they did last season. Um, probably one of those is a lot of people pick out the, fa- the fact that they didn't replace Vincent Company. I think that is a problem, but it, I think that was also something that City could have gotten away with. Um, the other, the, the main issue is that there's been so many different problems that have all kind of interlinked together. If you think about, yes, Company going, but then obviously Laporte got injured. That meant Fernandinho had to move into the back four. That meant that he wasn't playing in that holding midfield role which meant that Rodri struggled to adapt there a little bit more than he might have done otherwise. Um, it caused the kind of the press, which was so effective with City, to break down a little bit. And we've seen that become a lot more porous this season. And it's kind of like almost that, you know, when Guardiola's total football, well, when it breaks, it, it kind of breaks totally. And and just even, even like the loss of Leroy Sane and his absence this season, that's deprived them of the kind of width that they would use as a kind of plan B, if you like, to, to get past teams. So um, it's it's just been a very, you know, a season full of issues for Manchester City, even though they are undoubtedly still the second best team in in the in England and, and probably the only team that are able to compete with Liverpool, but they just haven't this season. And that's, that's where the turnaround's been. There was a clip during the rounds the other day of a press conference that Klopp gave after the 2016 Europa League final where Liverpool lost to Sevilla and I think the question was asked of him as to how Liverpool would recover from this moment um obviously taking the lead in that game and and spurned it in the end but the clip uh in that well in that clip Klopp talked about how Liverpool and Liverpool fans might look back on that moment as a turning point for the season and you know a lot of what is talked about of Klopp is often tempered by what quote-unquote, would be his big game record. Um, Miguel, uh, I'm not... You know, it feels kind of remiss to look at this point and and say that, you know, Klopp's answered his critics, but it does feel to an extent that he's um, 
you know, I suppose dispelled a few myths in the last couple of seasons, not least with the Champions League and now this. Uh, yeah, completely. Um, and it is as recent as two, three years ago when everyone was talking about, um, you know, I mean, even with, I think I wrote this in my piece, within FSG, around Liverpool, there was some talk that he might romantically have chosen the wrong club and he'll always be destined to be a kind of no more than a moral winner because while he would obviously do very well with Liverpool, the gap to City or to the wealthiest clubs would just be uh, would just be so uh, so big. Uh, but he's completely demolished that. Uh, and I think that's what really stands to him, beyond, beyond wider ways. And I think that that's the greatest element of, the, of this feat. It's not just bridging with City either. Uh, or United, it's actually, it's the level he's gone past them. Uh, and, I mean, Liverpool, as a super club, really, have various advantages. We've discussed it a lot on this pod, on the independent side, we've done big pieces on it. But even allowing for that, to get to this level over the past three years, even in this modern context, is is astonishing. Mel, the um, the impact on the players as well has been particularly profound, especially when you consider that while they have got some undoubted, you know, high-level talents. Quite a few of them have been brought up from Klopp. And I'm, I suppose I'm specifically thinking about the likes of Gini Wijnaldum, Andy Robertson, who essentially came from relegated sides. Now, obviously, that's kind of putting maybe too simplistic a slant on it. But, you know, even someone like Jordan Henderson has been taken to a new level by, I suppose, the confidence that has been able to be instilled in him. Yeah, that squad, which he likes to call his mentality monsters, it's actually incredible, the backstories of everyone involved. And that's actually, by design, one of the elements Liverpool look for in recruitment is characters and how each individual has dealt with setbacks in their career, whether that be uh, relegation, poor spells of form, uh, being released really early, um, how they've dealt with injury setbacks and personal issues. Um, Virgil van Dijk had an appendix problem, for example. Andy Robertson was out of work for ages when he when he first got into football, um, and all these kind of things create an environment where. You know, you brought up the Europa League final and before that it was the League Cup final that Liverpool had lost and then Kiev as well. You you had a collective that was so used to bouncing back in terms of their personal experiences that you knew they could do it collectively as well. And it's really funny because after the, the League Cup final, he said, only silly idiots stay on the floor. And then they reacted to that by reaching the Europa League final. After that, he, he said to the squad, um, you're all feeling like shit now, but I will guarantee you this team will be in many more finals and we may lose more finals, but we will definitely, definitely win finals. And last season, when they missed out on the league, by a point he said to them you will be winners you will win the title because you you're made to win this title you're built to do it and the the mentality of these players not just in terms of um how they respond to setbacks or obstacles and the 23 point margin makes it look like this was a really easy title to win but it wasn't liverpool had to dig deep in a lot of games there were you know a lot of narrow victories 
ugly victories. Um, and that's because this group of players have been utterly relentless. Their focus has been remarkable. So when we speak about those points records and stuff, I think human nature is that they will all relax a little bit now because they finally got over the line. But this team desperately wants to be benchmark setting. Yeah, you mentioned last season. Obviously, they only won. So they only lost one game last season. They've only lost one game so far this season. Because from the outside, it'll be well. Certainly, from my point of view, it's easy to look at that and think that there's the building blocks in place here for domination. Now we'll get into talking about who their challenges will be after the break. But before we go to that break, um, Critch, do you see something in this current Liverpool squad that suggests that they can? you know, they can dominate and, and essentially do what they've done this season, next season? I want to say yes. And I, I feel like they almost will. I, I expect them to be as strong. I do think there is maybe something of a of a cliff edge approaching, given that, you know, I, I think part of the reason why they've been so dominant and so supreme and successful this year is because a lot of these players that they have are in that kind of peak range of uh, age range of about, you know, 27, 28, 29. You know, I, I think if you look at the front three, uh, Salah, Mane, Firmino, I think Firmino's, I think they're all 28. Uh, Firmino's the oldest um, coming up in October this year. Um, you know, Van Dijk's the same age. You think about the midfield as well, which doesn't isn't spectacular, but does a lot of the hard, hard yards and hard graft. Um, they're all around that same age range as well. And... You know, that wouldn't be so much of a problem if at the same time they were able to reinforce. And, you know, we've seen over the past few weeks and over the past few months even just how just the level of interest there was in in, in Timo Werner and how much especially Klopp wanted him to join. Um, but that obviously didn't get over the line because of uh, reasons to do with the with the pandemic and, and the financial impact of that. And he's gone to Chelsea. So, you know, I, I, if I was a Liverpool fan, I would maybe... Be, you know, I'd obviously be delighted right now, but I'd, I'd maybe worry slightly just about where, how, how the next generation, how the next iteration of this team comes about, where it comes from. Now, I think there's reason to be to, to think that they can still be just as dominant and successful next year because obviously some of the key players are, are very young, like Trent uh, Robertson's a, a decent age as well. Uh, you've got people like Minamino coming through. We yet to see whether he's gonna he's going to live up to expectations and, and kind of take on the mantle, but that's absolutely possible as well. But I, I guess I would just be a little bit concerned that with a kind of rejuvenated Chelsea spending a lot of money, City will obviously go into the market and strengthen. They've got the ability to do that. I just worry whether it's going to be a, certainly a little more competitive next year. Miguel, you've written a lot on this subject about how the best managers are certainly the managers who are able to cultivate this kind of domination, do so by having a regular turnover of players and, you know, as Critch said, working out when people are going in and out of, I suppose, you know, their peaks and, and working with that. With that in mind, do you think Klopp is already or do you think Klopp should should start this summer thinking about who to offload and who to bring in? Even if that's a name like, you know, say a Firmino for, you know, another forward who um, who might be coming into his prime in two years time, for example. I think that's an interesting thing in itself um, because, uh, and it's something that I touched on, uh, Mel touched on there, but at what stage of the development is this Liverpool team? Um, 
because if we are going back to 2017, 2018 as the true start of this team, then there's this. Then if you go by the usual mantra, which are the kind of the Ferguson maxim, I suppose, of that every team only has three, four years before they need significant change to recharge them, then there is only a season left. And it, one of the things, I mean, I should caveat this as I said this last summer. <laughs> you would think that the the points level they've had over the past two years at some point is going to be unsustainable. Um, and they, there's going to be a natural dropping off. Uh, and wh- whether this team has peaked in that regard. Um, then, of course, is the issue that all three of the forwards, who are, who are the stars of this team, really, um, they're all individually 28. So, which is, in striker terms, quite old. I mean, obviously, it's, I mean, any, any people will point to the examples of, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo. Cavani, Ibrahimovic, you all have about 600 goals each since turn 28. But you wouldn't want all your strikers in that position, especially given how based the game is, and particularly how based Klopp's game is on, on physique and power and pace uh, and basically young man's games. Um, so I think there, there is an interesting question there. But then a lot of that, that question is also tied to the question about finances. <coughs> and I think... FSG are going to be very conservative with money while we're in the situation we are, and particularly while we have the unknown of uh, of when fans come back, which is obviously, even though it's a much smaller rev- revenue stream now proportion-wise, it's very important on, on the accounts. On the on the money front, you know, we're going to be entering into this period where people aren't going to be able to spend as much. So as such, might that be a way that Liverpool would be able to sustain themselves because they have the players, they don't really need to recruit too much and while we have seen Chelsea bring in a couple of big money signings you know even City will have to do things a little differently and we might not you know and certainly other teams might not be able to bring in the kind of players that could impinge Liverpool or certainly kind of you know prevent or or manage the way that they attack teams and try and tactically outthink them. Yeah it could keep them I mean the, uh, the, the glory of the situation Liverpool are in is that they'll always at the very least and that's the very very least They'll always be ticking over now. They just have that kind of set level of performance. Uh, although, actually, interesting, having read a lot of the pieces about, um, you know, how Klopp works and all, all of that over the past few days and kind of celebration of the title, it did get me thinking about how sustainable that is as well. I mean, Dortmund eventually burnt out because it was just, he asked so much of them over such a period of time. And that that is an issue to consider as well. Now, I, I don't think that would be the case for some time. I think and the level Liverpool are at, feels like it'll be the case for for, for a while. Um, but I do wonder whether there could be a slight shake-up to all this um, through uh, the, the pandemic and its its effects. I mean, and it's not too long ago since we were talking about how uh, City and Liverpool are basically miles ahead of everyone else. It's going to be impossible for anyone to get near them. It's really kind of a big two at the moment. Or there's a big six, but then there's a gigantic, gigantic two ahead. But that already feels like it could be shaken up because both Liverpool and City could have expenditure issues. City would be greatly constrained if the Champions League ban is upheld, and that could really change their outlook. And Liverpool, of course, I think we, we all expect now they're going to be that bit more conservative, which at the very least means they can't really you know, put the hammer down now that they're ahead. Um, although, obviously, Klopp can still work you know, genius feats. But given Chelsea's current position, it feels like they can get, at, at least get up to that level. Uh, and I think there will be a bit of a shake-up in that regard. Well, thanks, guys. After the break, we'll discuss more of what the title race will look like in the future and review the FA Cup results from the weekend. 
I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold on. And our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, looking ahead to next season, we discussed before the break about of how Liverpool can sustain this area of dominance. They are going to have challenges, of course. And I suppose as well as Manchester City, they have got Chelsea waiting in the wings. Chelsea side who have recruited Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech ahead of next season's push. Um, Guys, I'm just going to throw this open so anyone can take it. But how seriously should we take Chelsea? And are, are we getting a little bit too excited because they've spent a bit of money? I think Chelsea are a really interesting prospect, but that's as much as I think they are. I think there's still a lot of work to do, a lot of developing to do, uh, because there is still so much youth in the squad and they need shared experiences. They also need to learn how to react to setbacks. Um, Obviously, Frank Lampard had a base there of winners and a club that has been successful over the last few seasons, if not always um, consistent and and sustainable. But I, I still, Chelsea intrigue me but they don't automatically strike me as as a genuine threat to Manchester City and, and Liverpool. When it comes right down to it, I still can't see Frank Lampard beating either Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola to a title. Um, now, Lampard could prove us wrong. He could, he could or prove me wrong, should I say. Could end up one of the greats, but I still have some caveats and doubts from his career so far um, and I don't think he looks at the potential level of those other two but I think that, that'd be that'd be my my major hang up but, but let's see. Critch do you think people are doing Man City a disservice here by even chucking in Chelsea into that bracket because you know while they did lose that game on Thursday there were moments where City were, were all over Chelsea and but for a few mistakes from City themselves it could it would have been a fairly different result uh, yeah I, I think I agree with that characterization of the game I think that the, you can't really judge the level between the two teams on just one meeting between them I think um, you know City is still I've not got the table in front of me but there's still a handful of points ahead of Chelsea this season and comfortably going to finish second so the, the other thing is that you know in in this kind of debate this season about 
Liverpool and, and City and the title race. I've always felt that there's when you watch City, as great a side as Liverpool are, when you watch City at their very best, their ceiling is almost higher than any any other team in, in the England and maybe in Europe. I mean, you saw yesterday uh, the the quarterfinal against Newcastle. Now, that's kind of two extremes meeting together. But, you know, j- just the level of dominance that they can have on games and on other teams really is, it's still there for them. They're just, it just becomes undermined by these defensive lapses or mistakes or these problems that we've mentioned before that all seem to kind of interlink and then just bring the whole system crashing down. Now, are they going to be in a position to fix those next season? I think it's an interesting question, you know, whether or not they're in the Champions League is going to have a huge impact on that, like Miguel said. Um, I expect that given that it will be Guardiola's last season, we'll see him try and perhaps, you know, I don't know, not go for it in a sense, but, you know, do something that he's he's going to want to win this title back and not, because he can't, he kind of came to England under this perception that maybe his football doesn't work in this country. And I think he blew that out of the water with the 298 point seasons, you know, over, overall. There's been a few more questions this time around about just how, whether Klopp's got the better of him, whether this is, you know, this is, it's been his worst season as a top flight manager. And he's going to want to prove something different next year. I would expect City to still finish above Chelsea, perhaps even become title winners. I, I, I still think they've got that level just above. Like And like Miguel says, I don't personally see Lampard really challenging either Klopp or Guardiola for a title. I don't think he's shown enough during his career so far to suggest he can do that yet. Well, yeah, on Man City and Guardiola's season, they're still on course to win all the Cups. And as you mentioned there, put on a dominant performance against Newcastle in the FA Cup quarterfinals, winning 2-0. And they're joined by Manchester United, who beat Norwich City 2-1 on Saturday. Chef, uh, sorry, Arsenal, who beat Sheffield United 2-1 as well. And Chelsea with a 1-0 win over Leicester City. Now, the semi-final draw was made at halftime during that City-Newcastle game. And if it's Manchester United against Chelsea and Arsenal against Man City, a game to be played at Wembley over the weekend of the 18th and 19th of July. Miguel, I was immediately thinking about your bumper piece on the skewed state of football when um, when City's result was confirmed. Uh, because you used the FA Cup as an example of how the bigger clubs have had a hold on it over uh, had a hold over it rather over in recent times uh, and those four teams in the semi-finals are the four previous winners um so yeah just uh, more evidence to uh, back up some of your salient points it's a it's a barometer for the game in that sense in that the big boys can be half arsed and put out half their their best team and yet still relatively handily cruise through um I think Project Restart has been instructed from that point of view as well. In that bar Wolves, we've had a little bit of a, a reasserting of the order. Sheffield United and Leicester are really dropping. I, I really worry for Leicester in terms of their Champions League place, whereas United and Chelsea have kind of, you know, um, they've picked up form again. Uh, but just as interesting as regards to kind of the, the fact that the big boys, it's also the choice that the big boys have made. So I think this this semi final, these semi finals are as interesting because. For all the clubs, it will actually mean more than a usual FA Cup. For City, obviously, there's now this issue of potentially winning all the knockout competitions this season to make up for the fact they've lost the league. But on the other side, we basically have three young managers who are relatively early in their career. I mean, Solskjaer is the one exception there, 
uh, who the clubs have, pay, have placed enormous faith and stock in. So the signpost of a first trophy would be quite significant. And even the way that plays out is actually is um, there's an interesting angle there because basically it's obviously Pep Guardiola heading up the club that are the favourites for the FA Cup now. But all three of these managers basically want to be Guardiola's in their own right. They're all these players. They're all these former club legends who very quickly went into uh, top jobs in coaching. Um, well, actually, again, Solskjaer is the the um, the exception there. But maybe they got jobs in big. Their big jobs in coaching when you wouldn't traditionally have expected that, and they're all kind of trying to you know pursue that path. So I think it's 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 an interesting epic up in that regard. Melissa, um, I suppose I'm just going to ask you frankly, who needs it more? You know, I look at that lineup and I think you know, for Manchester United and Chelsea, it could be you know the icing on the cake of what has been a. a you know, fairly decent season, certainly United's second half. Um, for Arsenal, obviously, it's something that could, you know, provide a bit of comfort for, you know, a club and a fan group who've been through some pretty torrid times. And for City, it could, you know, be one of, as you said, one of a number of knockout trophies that could, you know, ease their woes of not winning the league. So who would, who do you reckon would gain the most from, from picking this up? As things stand at the moment, probably Arsenal. I think they're in desperate need of some sort of hope and optimism and something to build on to just uplift everything that's going on at the club. But in saying that, it might also be a negative if they want it. Maybe they wouldn't um, fully comprehend the amount of work that they've got to do. Uh, It might not lead them to make all the decisions they should make or strengthen as much as they should. Um, tr- winning trophies too soon can sometimes have that kind of adverse effect. Obviously, we know Frank Lampard and Oleg Solskjaer want it because I know Solskjaer gets us a lot more than, than Frank Lampard. It actually doesn't feel like Lampard gets it at all much, but there are still so many question marks out against his credentials as a manager and a manager of an elite club um but honestly i cannot see beyond manchester city winning the fa cup again chris i throw a similar question to you but specifically around Solskjaer. um would this be kind of seen as you know just desserts for what i suppose what could ultimately prove a, a job well done considering where united were at points this season yeah, but I mean, he is also responsible for where United were at points this season. So you have to, you have to take it in totality, I guess. Um, I think you know if they ended look if they ended the season uh, with a trophy and well, okay, you, you've got to kind of separate it, I guess. If they ended the season with the FA Cup and they failed to qualify for the Champions League, I don't think you'd necessarily say that was a success, simply because you know that might have been the case twenty twenty five years ago, but nowadays. Really, if for a club the size of Manchester United and for all these clubs that we're talking about, it isn't just enough to simply win a domestic trophy and, and say that your season's been a success. You need that revenue stream uh, of Champions League, Champions League football. Um, and if you don't have that, then really, you know, the questions start to be asked. And they have been asked all season at the points where United haven't looked like they're going to get that. Um, whether they're going to get that, I suppose that depends on whether they win the Europa League or if they finish in the top four or the top five, depending on, on City's uh, court appeal. 
Now, if they do any of those, I think, to be honest, you could have a look back on United's season and you could say, yeah, there's been ups and downs. Yeah, it hasn't been great. Yes, at this present moment in time, they are still on course for their worst ever Premier League finish. But given that you've achieved Champions League football via the back door, via whatever route, I think you'd, you'd say, OK, let's move on. We've made progress and let's go ahead again next season and see, see where it takes us. Um, he deserves at least another season, a couple of, um, you know, a, f- a few more months to show us um, why he's in this job. But I think um, if, say that United finished, I don't know, sixth or, or fifth and didn't get in the Champions League through that and only won the FA Cup, I don't think that would necessarily be enough to uh, to answer a, a lot of the questions that have been levelled against them. Well, away from the glory, there are a couple of important games over the weekend in the battle for relegation and defeat to Aston Villa at home to Wolves and Watford losing at home to Southampton. Now, victory for Southampton takes them, um, well, completely out of the relegation chatter. They were 10 points off the drop before the game started and now are 13. So they can focus on enjoying the rest of the season. Whereas it's a bit more precarious for Watford, who've got a game in hand at the time of recording. They're just one point ahead. Um, so basically, just a single point between Aston Villa, Bournemouth, West Ham and Watford in ascending order. Um, Miggs, West Ham have the best running on paper. They play Watford, Norwich, who are bottom, and Villa on the last day of the season. But, you know, there's... I mean, they couldn't... It feels like they couldn't possibly go down, even of course, even though, of course, they can, given the situation. But for out of all four, it seems if, if they do get dragged into it and do ultimately finish in the bottom three, then it would be catastrophic, wouldn't it? Um, to a degree, yes. Uh, uh, catastrophic in terms of, in terms of their kind of their their plans and what they want to be, and it would be an atrocious reflection on how the club has been run, especially given they went to the Olympic Stadium, which remains such obviously a controversial move, and a lot of that was predicated in the idea that they could be some sort of London club and grow out of that. Something that hasn't really happened, and some of some of those reasons are connected to the stadium itself but also the decision-makers and the very fact they've gone from a manager like Pellegrini back to Moyes. But it just feels also moribund at West Ham. I, I, I actually think they will go down. Um, I, I think Villa even have a bit more about them at the moment. I know, and I know, I know Villa have, you know, they lost to Wolves the weekend, which looked which look like put, put them in a precarious position. But, um, but I just have absolutely no confidence in, in West Ham in that regard. And I think Moyes was just a bad choice. Uh, you know, and it, it's that classic kind of conservative thinking, uh, which most clubs have gotten away from, particularly if you look at Brighton. But, you know, Moyes, he, oh, like the, the idea is that he's some sort of battle-hardened choice um, and he's got the experience to get them out of it. But no, it's, just, it's a conservative choice because it's, it's an approach inside of football that just isn't cutting edge anymore. And it's, it, it's probably more of a gamble these days than going for some sort of progressive manager. Do you not think, though, that West Ham... West Ham, so the reason I think West Ham might stay up is that because they've spent so weirdly over the last couple of years, they've ended up buying some actually very good attacking players in Felipe Anderson, who obviously Moyes isn't necessarily trusting now, but does have at his disposal to throw on for the last 20 minutes, as all kind of limited managers do. They look into their bench, look at, for a creative player or a forward and throw them on, and they happen to have the best of those alternates. Yeah, but you have to be able to do something with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. 
and I, I, I just have I just have absolutely no faith in them. Um, yeah, they haven't scored a goal in their last three games, West Ham. So having all those attacking players doesn't really mean much if they're not doing anything in the decisive third of the pitch. Okay, when you put it like that, it does sound <laughs> quite a quite foolish plan. Yeah, granted. Um, Critch, who do you have as uh, as going down? Where is your where's your money? Um, I think Bournemouth are in a lot of trouble. To be honest, I think. Um... Uh, I, I I don't bet on football regularly and even when I do it's kind of pathetic sums like £10 but I did put a £10 bet on Bournemouth going down before lockdown um, <laughs> so that's that's where my money is I think um, you know I, I, having watched Villa as well I just think Villa's one of those clubs I, you get this a lot in the media like I, I think there's a lot of people who want to see a club with the with the history and the status and uh, of Aston Villa do well and people love going to Villa Park etc cetera, etc cetera. but really at a time when you know lockdown kind of came in for them at just the right time because they were on an atrocious run just before they wanted that kind of restart and it just hasn't happened for them so far and next up they've got Liverpool and then Manchester United now you know, Liverpool or Liverpool United might not always be, you know, great, but I, you, I, with the form they're in at the minute, you don't really see them picking up points from either of those two games. So I think I think they're gone, and I think to be bright, uh, sorry, Bournemouth. Whenever I've seen them, there just isn't isn't really enough there. And like like you say, I kind of agree that West Ham, some of the recruitment there has been questionable over the last few years, but there's enough players in there for them to perhaps just edge over the line. Whereas with Bournemouth, I just I don't see it. There's too many issues, too many problems, and I think I think it'll be those. It'll, it'll be Norwich who obviously look out of it, Villa, and then and then Bournemouth. I think. Melissa, what are uh, you know not too impressed by West Ham's attacking line, but who are your um, who are your two to go down with Norwich? I still have a feeling, as Miguel does, that West Ham will go down just because of the disjointedness of their entire project everything everything that they've tried to do over the last few years has been contradictory and I think you see that on the pitch um, in the dugout and Bournemouth also and Villa as well have been horrendous in attack all of them are down there because they're obviously not scoring enough goals but I think Bournemouth at least have and Villa as well, to an extent, have an identity that they're following. The The issue with Villa has been that they can play very well and still lose games um, quite ridiculously. Um, so I think it will be Norwich, Villa, and I think it would be West Ham. Migs, do you think there's anything in the peculiarity that from that bottom five... The only person almost guaranteed of his job next year is Daniel Farker, who's going to finish bottom. Um, no, because Norwich, I think, got there's an they're not, they're quite well run Norwich, and there's an awareness they probably got promoted too soon, so they know that it would be stupid to make a decision on that based on what has essentially been overperforming and the way respected. Whereas all those other clubs are kind of rather than kind of being ahead of schedule. They're fighting the tide almost. It, it's all, it, it's almost the opposite. Maybe maybe Villa are a little bit different to that. Given Dean Smith, I think has done quite a good job generally, um, and maybe hasn't been served by recruitment. Uh, but but yeah, I think it makes complete sense. That's the case. 
Well, it's that time of the week where I'm going to ask two of you for your hero and villain, respectively. Um, Mel, who is your hero for this week? I think it's got to be Marcus Rashford because he's um, fight against, you know, the free school meal vouchers being extended, has been won, and now he's put up all the information of how people can apply for that. And I think that trumps everything else, football or other kinds of sports. Um, and then the villain would be the imbecile firing fireworks at the Liver building. Yeah, that's a, that's a strong case for both of those two. Uh, Miguel, have you got a couple? Um, I'm going to name Frank Lampard for villain, actually, for his comments in response to Raheem Sterling. Um, because I think he showed a misunderstanding of the argument and got kind of personally, def- needlessly personally defensive about it uh, and kind of muddied the issue when he wasn't being cited as a problem. It was just an illustration of, of, of a wider issue and a systemic issue. And I don't think his comments helped. I think he would have been much better served taking the Garrett Southgate approach, which was basically an acknowledge of his privilege, uh, um, or acknowledgement of his privilege. And there was no acknowledgement of his privilege of there. I mean, the, I've been thinking about this Lampard thing a lot. And, you know, he, he can go on about hard work. And obviously within the context he has, he's worked very hard. That I don't think anyone questioned that, you know, with the foundation of his game and all that. But yet still, that context has come as a consequence of the fact his uncle was is one of the best-known managers in the game and knew uh, the the decision-maker, Mel Morris, at, at Derby, Derby County. That's how he got that job in the first place. Then, obviously, there's a wider history with Chelsea. But, I mean, to put this quite simply, and maybe a little bit crudely, but I think it serves to illustrate the point, imagine Frank Lampard was black. He doesn't have an uncle who's one of the best-known managers in the game because there's no... Man, there's, there's no black manager who who can have had the status of Harry Redknapp because of systemic issues in English football. Yeah, that's the thing I found most surprising about, um, you know, Lampard's comments. I, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure how the quotes or Raheem Sterling's quotes were put to him, but he immediately went on the defensive and it was almost like, uh, you know, he. I would like to think that, you know, certainly from, from his press conferences, Lampard seems quite a considered bloke, someone who does like to take in, I suppose, some of the social aspects around... I don't think he takes criticism well, though. Sorry? I don't think he takes criticism well, though. Right, right, okay, okay. But you kind of... I don't know, it it was such an easy win, I thought. You know, when you're presented with those comments, I think you... You know, as you said, you know, there's a way of dealing with them, but he just, you know, he just didn't really hit the right note. Critch, uh, finally to you for a hero or villain. Um, well, I don't know if I can really follow up on the villain one there because Miguel seems to have <laughs> that up perfectly. So I'll go with him on that one. But I, I suppose the hero of the week has to be um, Jurgen Klopp, I suppose, given that Liverpool have won their, their first title in 30 years. Is that, does that count? <laughs> I think it counts. So I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think it's good that we've got a wide range of, of heroes and villains, and I can't—I don't think you can disagree with any of them, actually, so fair dues. But that is all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. Uh, thank you to Miguel, Melissa and Mark for joining me, and thank you for listening as well. If you're a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, 
or wherever you listen and get your podcasts and leave us a rating as well to help more people find us. Be sure to follow Indie Sport and Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything that's going on and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.